Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. At the end of the first section of the recording, please turn the tape over to hear the rest of the service. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. That anthem expresses the song of my life when I think of the kindness of God to me, all that God has done for me and my family, I cannot but rejoice. It ought to be the, the heart cry of every Christian person when we think of all that God has done. How can we do anything but rejoice for all he has been and done for us? Thank you, choir. Some time ago, I was flipping through the channels of TVV, one of my favorite aerobic exercises. I was looking for something interesting when I came upon Riverdance. I love Riverdance, and uh, in fact, uh, Cindy and I uh, had a little surprise va uh, Valentine getaway two years ago to Vancouver. Took the train up, wonderful train ride, and uh, attended Riverdance while we were there. So I've always enjoyed it ever since the first time I saw it, and, and so I began to watch. It was pledge time on this public broadcasting uh, station, so uh, when it came to pledge time, I do what many of you do at offertory time, which was uh, tuned to something other... No, <laughs> just... <laughs> Change the channel. And I was surprised as I continued flicking through to come to another public broadcasting station, and guess what was playing there? Riverdance. And it started a little later, and so I had the opportunity all night to kind of flick back and forth between channels. If I saw something I really liked, I went back and saw it again. If there's another song I didn't like that much, I got to switch to the other one, enjoy one that I did. And so back and forth I went all of the rest of the evening, all the while avoiding all of those pesky uh, commentators who were asking me to call in. Imagine now if every single station on your TV had Riverdance, all of which had started at a different time. You would be able to just spend all of your time watching Riverdance and going to all the parts you're interested in, jumping back and forth from one scene to another. And you may not be aware of it, but that is exactly what's going on in the book of Revelation. As I've told you several times before, if you want to read this book from beginning to end as a continuous timeline, you will be frustrated, for it is not that. It was not written that way. It was not given that way. This book is written in circles, in cycles. It jumps around chronologically from time to time. Are you getting that yet? Nod your head that you are beginning to see that. You'll be frustrated if you think that four ought to follow three and that five ought to, ought to follow four and, and right down through the chapters. It doesn't work that way. One minute, you're looking at the great tribulation. And the next moment, you, you are looking at the final judgment of God. And now we're back to plagues again. It jumps all over the place. And this morning's text takes us on a giant leap forward again to, to the final judgment, the final consummation of all things. And on the face of it, this text appears to be nothing but wrath and judgment. Ah, but there is something wonderful hidden within this story 
And as we go through, I want to see if you can spy the wonderful vision within the vision. Let us read together. Revelation chapter 14, beginning with verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls, there's this text again, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you give to us today, and we are eager to turn to it, but before we do, we pause to thank you also for the gift of your saints, two of whom you've called home to be with you. And we pray for them in this moment of silence. We lift up John Hansen's mother, Janet. She has returned into your loving embrace. We pray also for Edna Thompson as she has returned to you. And we take to heart these serendipitous words from the Scripture text today that blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, for they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. We claim that for these two sisters in Jesus Christ. Enjoy them for all of eternity until that day that we return to them and bring comfort to John and bring comfort to Edna's family. And Father, in this moment, we also lift up our own Pastor Stewart and his mom who is... Uh, facing death any time in the next few days or weeks. Please bring comfort to him 
and to that family as they deal with this difficult time. May the presence of Jesus be real in their lives, the comfort of the Holy Spirit that can be found nowhere else. Bring them peace. For we offer these things up in the name of Jesus. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake. Amen. This text begins with three angels. For those of you who had a little Greek, you know that the word angel or angelos, angelos, means messenger. And these angels bring to us three messages of, of warning. A warning about the judgment that is to come. Now, by now, you should have seen two major themes that continue to recur throughout the book of Revelation. The first theme is God's patience. God's great patience. Again and again, we read how God is holding out. He, he does not bring the final judgment. There's restraint. Even when there's destruction, there's still a portion that is saved. Hoping, hoping, hoping for the second point, which is that those who repent ultimately, no matter how late in the day it is, God is eager to welcome them. So there's this God's great patience to wait on His judgment and the hope and desire that those who do not yet know Jesus will respond to Him so that they might be spared from God's great wrath and judgment. Those are, the, are two of the great themes here. And that's what these three angels offer as they bring to us the messages for the morning. Judgment is coming, they say, and you had better get on the stick. You had better do something about it because you are running out of chances. The first of the three angels in there admonishes us to worship the one true God, the God who created all of the heavens and all of the earth. The second angel offers a different kind of admonishment. He speaks out against Babylon. And remember, Babylon is code. Anytime we read Babylon, we know that that means any government, any political institution that is aligned against God and for evil. There was a real Babylon. It was evil. There was Egypt. It was a Babylon. It was evil. The Medes, the Persians, and so forth. And the present-day Babylon, as John is writing this at this very moment, is Rome. And the angel rises up and says... You may think that this Babylon, this Rome, this empire is unbeatable and eternal. But I tell you, Babylon will fall. It will surely fall. And then there's a third angel that offers another warning. And that's to those who are tempted to sell out to the culture. Tempted to receive the mark of the beast on the forehead or on the hand. And the, angel, the third angel says this. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on their forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And by this segue, we are introduced to a theme that we have seen throughout Scripture and throughout the book of Revelation, another that we need to look at this morning. And that is a very difficult theme. It is the theme of the wrath of God. Now, we don't like to hear about the wrath of God. We don't like to imagine God as being an angry God. One of the best-known sermons that was ever preached was preached by a, a man named Jonathan Edwards, and it was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the image that he used was that we were as a, well, as a spider dangling from a web by the fingers of God over fire. And that it is, it is only God holding us back, but He is angry that keeps us from our own destruction. Frankly, that's not the sort of imagery that sells real well today. We don't like to think of God as angry, do we? We don't like to think of God as wrathful, really, do we? Very much. But I would ask this, why not? Why are we so averse to thinking of God as having anger, as having wrath? We experience wrath and anger all the time. And we feel justified about it, don't we? 
When we read about mass murderers in Uganda, doesn't it make us furious? When we read about a school teacher that seduces one of his children and continues to keep his hooks in her over the many years, doesn't it make us furious? When we read about a molester of children or an abuser of women who goes free because of a legal technicality, doesn't it make us furious? It does me. There are things in the world that ought to evoke our wrath. There are things that ought to make us angry, terrible, horrible injustices that ought to call forth the righteous indignation that every Christian person can muster. Every decent person can muster, Christian or not. We should hate to see babies killed daily and villages ethnically cleansed and women systematically raped as a form of military torture. When we read of such things, it ought to be appalling to us. It ought to bring forth wrath. It ought to bring forth anger. Wrath against evil and injustice is the appropriate response for us human beings. Why then should it not be all the more appropriate for God? If we who are sinful know what it means to feel outrage against a heinous and inhumane crime, why should we be surprised then that a holy God who made us in His image and finds us to be precious finds such acts even more repulsive to Him? When we read in Scripture of God's wrath being poured out against the world, here is what we should understand it to say, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Sin matters to God. Sin matters deeply. Justice matters to God. The pain and fear of oppressed, beaten, murdered people, it matters to God. The horror of a child that is mistreated by the very one who should protect her matters deeply to God. And he will bring judgment against these acts and against the perpetrators of these acts someday. Sin makes God furious. Sin evokes God's wrath. The sin that causes us to turn our worship towards the beast, towards the idol of our own making, that makes God angry too. Do not ever underestimate God's hatred of evil. Never. But you say, Pastor Mark, I don't want to hear this stuff. I don't want to hear this stuff. I want to hear about the God of love. I want to hear John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. All right, I'll let you hear John 3.16 as long as you're willing to read the rest of the chapter. How about verse 36 of John chapter 3? He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. You cannot take the love without the wrath. You cannot take the grace without the judgment. They come together. If we do not have the courage to say that our righteous Heavenly Father hates sin, we are not telling the whole truth. We are not sharing the good news. If we talk only about love and grace of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have left out the reason that Jesus died in the first place. To pay the horrible price for our sin, which we never could pay ourselves. One day, God shall judge all that is evil in this world, and we need saving from that judgment. In fact, as we continue with the text, we catch a glimpse of God's coming wrath in its final judgment. It's portrayed in the imagery of harvest. There's a harvest of wheat and there's a harvest of the grapes. Do you see those two harvests? The harvest of the wheat, we come to believe, I think, represents the harvest of the righteous. Remember how often Jesus spoke of wheat as the metaphor for righteous? 
as a, a wheat as the metaphor for those who are going to be saved? Jesus said, the wheat fields are ripe unto harvest. Pray that God will send the workers. And when the, the people were making their way from the Samaritan village after Jesus talked to the woman at the well, he looked out again and said, look, behold, the, the wheat fields are ripe unto harvest. We know that old hymn, bringing in the sheaves, taken out of one of the Psalms. But actually, this vision of Revelation looks to a time when all those who have loved Jesus will be gathered up in a final fruitful harvest. Ah, then there's the other harvest, the second harvest. And it is as horrible a harvest as the wheat harvest is glorious. It is the harvest of grapes. A sharp sickle is swung and the grapes are gathered and thrown into what God call, uh, John calls the winepress of God's wrath. The imagery of grapes uh, represents many places in, uh, in Scripture judgment. For instance, in Joel, Joel says, Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. No judgment there yet. Ah, the vats overflow for their wickedness is great. You can find it in Isaiah and you can find it in other places too. Often the grape, the wine, is a symbol of judgment, of wrath, the winepress. The image here becomes quite gruesome in verse 20, doesn't it? As the grapes are, cru are crushed, what is it that comes out of the winepress? Yes, it's not, it's not wine at all. It is blood. And such a flow of blood as you have never seen before. It is a river of blood so deep that it reaches the horse's bridle. And this horrible river, river of blood flows a distance of 1,600 stadia. Do you know how many stadia that is? How many miles? That's 184 miles. George Ladd, one of the commentators, writes, This is an image of radical judgment that crushes every vestige of evil and hostility to the reign of God. And certainly it is that. But I believe there's more to this last section than meets the eye. In fact, I believe that there's a wonderful vision within a vision in this verse. A vision that turns even this merciless destruction of evil into God's greatest act of mercy. And I wonder if you caught any glimpses of this. Who, first of all, look at verse 18. You have 18 there? The angels told to gather the grapes, but interestingly, to gather the grapes from what? <clears throat> Do you see it? <clears throat> the earth's vine. Take note of that. Just stick that in way in your head for a moment. Who is described as the vine? Who describes himself as the vine? Hold on to that thought just for a moment. Now, look at verse 20. Where is the wine press located? Do you see that? Outside the city. Now, why does John include the location of the wine press? This is a very interesting statement. There's not a lot of theological reason that this is included in previous text. Why does John mention the wine press as being outside of the city? <clears throat> what would John's first century Christian readers have, what would have been their first thought when they heard the words outside the city? Exactly. Where was Jesus, the vine, crucified? Hebrews 13, 12 says, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. I had an aha when I saw this. There is no doubt that this harvest speaks of coming judgment. But I am led to believe by the work of other commentators who know much more about this than I do. That this is also a word of salvation and grace. I believe that the wine press outside the city is the cross of Jesus. And it was on the cross of Jesus that God's wrath was expressed against the sin of the world. 
That is why Jesus uttered those most horrible of words ever spoken by Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For in that moment, the sin of the entire world was placed upon him, and the perfect God could not look upon him who he had known for all of eternity. <clears throat> Suddenly, the language about the blood that was so horrible actually becomes beautiful. Suddenly, the ghastly river of blood described in this text becomes a fountain, pure and clear. Do you remember how high the river flowed? How high is it described as flowing? Up to the bridle of the horse. That's about five feet deep. And how far did the river flow? What was the length? 1,600 stadia. Remember I told you words, letters, numbers mean something in John. They always mean something. 1,600 stadia was the traditional length of the entirety of Palestine from its northernmost border to its southernmost border. In other words, he is saying the entire land. In other words, he is saying out of the winepress of God's wrath comes enough blood to cover the entire land. Do you get what this is saying? The blood that flowed from the wounds of Jesus was adequate to cover the sins of every single soul that will repent and turn to him. It is blood enough for all. Is that good? That is good. And suddenly the most gruesome passage becomes the most gracious passage. Suddenly a horrible harvest becomes a heavenly feast. And we celebrate that feast today. The wheat and the grape. The bread and the wine. The body broken for us and the blood poured out for us to wash away our sin, to make atonement for our evil, to appease the wrath of a holy God. Blood enough for all who would repent and turn to Jesus. I invite you to this table today. I invite you to come and partake. This is not a Presbyterian table. It belongs to the Lord, and we just set it with Presbyterian utensils. If you are sorry for your sins, if you are grateful for the, the expression of God's love, or if you're glad that Jesus Christ bore the brunt of God's wrath on that winepress outside the city, then I invite you to receive this gift of grace today and in so doing find nourishment for your soul. I'll bet you have never sung the following hymn. But let us remain seated as we sing the first hymn of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. <clears throat> 